This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. You're listening across the Real Presence Radio Network. We're joining you from our studio here in Fargo, North Dakota. And my name is Nathan Sather. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Tom O'Keefe, a good friend of mine. Boy, it's been a good show so far, hasn't it? We're going to finish it off right. We are definitely going to finish it off right. We definitely have the best man and the best topic for this. So we're very excited to have Father James Ermer here from St. Leo's Catholic Church in Castleton. He's going to talk to us a little bit about the Eucharist, and we're very thankful for that. Father Ermer, welcome to Real Presence Live. Thank you. Now, Tom and I were talking at the beginning of the day. How long have you been in Castleton there? Because we, we thought it was more than a decade. You're right. <laughs> 14 years, going well, on my 14th year. Not, not, not too bad. No, it's pretty close to that. I know I said I've been in town Fargo for 10 years, and I know it's been at least that long. Right. So, so we're very thankful for your priestly ministry and the work that you've done for the church, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Eucharist today. So for some people who may not be familiar with you, if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll get right into it. Well, my name is uh, Father Jim Emmer. I'm pastor both at St. Leo's in Castleton and St. Thomas in Buffalo. My mission parish, I'm a native of Walhalla, North Dakota, way up in the northeast corner. Our farm was three miles from the Canadian border. So I picked up some Canadian language, like toque, for the stocking cap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they said, that's a Walhalla term. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from up there, too, so I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> you're, you're from Walhalla? Well, or? I'm 30 miles away. Oh, yep, okay. Yep, yep. So you're not quite as Canadian as Father Irmer is. Pre-COVID, we used to be a lot more comfortable being back and forth with our friends in Canada. Right. So the, the church has basically said that we're going to have a Eucharistic revival here in, in, in America. That's what I've heard, too. <laughs> I, I went to a, a Eucharistic, uh, was it called a revival there in, in Fargo that we had here a conference. couple of weeks ago? Conference. It was, it was very beautiful. Um, and so this is certainly something that means so much to so many Catholics and, and is m greatly misunderstood by many Catholics as well, too. So the first thing I'm just going to ask you is what are some of those foundational scriptural texts that shape our understanding of the Eucharist and, and where our belief in the Eucharist comes from when it comes from a scriptural perspective? Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's good to know a little history of the Eucharist because it's gone through a lot of, not uh, changes in its essence, but a lot of changes in its kind of outward appearances in many ways. But when you get back to Scripture, I think one of the things, obviously we know the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the institution narratives. And John's Gospel has that classic, uh, the Bread of Life discourse in chapter 6, which are clearly foundational for. But I also think it's kind of interesting as you kind of go through that Scripture, some of the things that will become in the history of the Church, fundamental kinds of concepts, beliefs, and practices. Um, one is, for example, the Emmaus story, you know, on Easter Sunday night, when the disciples, uh, two of them wanted to leave Jerusalem on Easter Sunday morning. Kind of surprising, because they've just got news that the tomb is empty, and they either are disappointed or no one knows quite why they're leaving. But on the road, they meet the stranger, and ultimately we know it ends up uh, with the being Christ and the breaking of the bread, which became the first known kind of name for the Eucharist. But what I think is kind of interesting in that story is uh, it's a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And all that time, they're intrigued by what Jesus has to say as he interpreted Scripture for them. And uh, then when they get to Emmaus, just outside of Emmaus, they're asked to, the stranger, to break bread with them. And he does, and in the breaking of the bread, they recognize that it's the risen Christ. And I've always thought that's an interesting story about uh, how the structure of the Mass is. There's a liturgy of the Word, 
and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And that seven-mile walk is basically the Liturgy of the Word. That structure, and then when it kind of got to Emmaus, is the breaking of the bread is actually Liturgy of the Eucharist of the Day. So that's kind of embedded in Scripture right from the kind of the very beginning. And that's also articulated, I think, uh, right after the story of Pentecost, when, you know, 3,000 people supposedly were baptized by Peter. The very next thing Scripture says in that Acts story is that uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' instructions, communal living, and the breaking of the bread. And so from the very beginning, this was a reality in the life of the church, you know. And so those three things that are going to keep coming back, you know, first of all, they devote themselves to the apostles' instruction. Is that kind of the beginning of the liturgy of the word again? Communal living. This, this wasn't just something done for themselves. as a matter of bringing something about or creating a reality in the world. And, of course, the breaking of the bread, uh, what we would call today the, the Eucharist. Uh, so that's one thing that I think is bedded right deep in Scripture from the very beginning of. And also I think in the one Corinthian story of Paul, when he, in the Corinthian community, he said a lot of problems with that community. He established that church. He spent a year and a half there, developed that community. And after he's left, he's heard some disappointing news. I guess he felt he didn't do a good job as a pastor. I'm not so sure. But he has to write back to that community about lots of things. There's a case of incest going on in that community. Christians are taking one another to probate courts. People are arguing who got baptized by who, so who was kind of like a personality cult kind of thing. All those issues uh, he addresses, but he also addresses that issue of the Eucharist. When, uh, and however Eucharist was kind of celebrated there, maybe certainly a lot different than we know today in terms of church buildings and stuff they did, and they probably did it in house churches, in churches where... And so uh, there was a sense that when people gathered to celebrate the Eucharist, there was also that sense that... Uh, they were maybe coming early, sometimes late. The rich and poor were not with one another. And Paul is extremely disappointed. He says that's basically a sin against what you're doing. That's not what the Eucharist is about. It's not about rich and poor being separate. It's not coming early and some getting hors d'oeuvres and some not being you know, to a meal. And so this idea that it has a significance unto itself and we should know what we're doing when we celebrate the Eucharist. I think that becomes the big great worthiness question which is still come around the life of the church today when we talk about who should receive communion, who shouldn't receive communion, who should be excommunicated, who shouldn't. This stuff is embedded <laughs> deep in those scripture passages. I mean, way back then. And I think another one was, um, another thing scripture passage, a little simple statement was in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Paul talks about on the first day of the week, they gather for the breaking of the bread when he's on his missionary journey. So Sunday becomes a day. You know, all those things that we just take for granted today have very deep biblical roots in that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I think, you know, even more importantly, when you dig into some of those institution narratives of the Synoptic Gospels, the language that is there is, is quite revealing in a sense when Jesus speaks about his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of a new covenant. That begins to be the, the foundations for what the church will ultimately come to speak very deeply about in terms of the Mass or the Eucharist being a sacrifice. That's already kind of in, in deeply embedded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you go back to those institution narratives, you, you kind of see that stuff. Uh, then when you get the letter of Hebrews, uh, it speaks about Jesus Christ being a high priest, and he's both the priest and the victim. Now that's going to be foundational for a later church. You know, church will talk about the sacrifice, the, the Mass being a sacrifice, and the priesthood is who offers sacrifices. All that stuff is embedded there. But obviously in history, it's going to get expanded and dealt with kind of a thing. So 
I think those are things that we shouldn't forget that's embedded in those early scripture or those scripture passages that kind of feed then the life of the church for the next 2,000 years and a lot of the theological controversies and reflections that will happen come out of those kinds of uh, biblical reflections. Um, you talk a lot about communal living, and I just think that's, a, that's an area of those three, three things, the sharing of the gospel, the communal living, and, and then the, the Eucharist is, is the, the, the challenge of that communal living now, having that the sense of community. I know it was, it was certainly easier in a, in a small town to have that communal identity as part of your parish, but that, that can be a challenge. Is what's your identity of your parish, and how does, how does that work? Well, I think that even has a, a deeper reality in terms of ecumenism. You know, uh, the kingdom of God, when it comes in its fullest sense, will not be just a few people at the table, supposedly. Well, the whole mission of Christ was to bring a communion to the human race. And, you know, we have a lot of differences. We'll get into that maybe other talks about some of those ecumenical issues of, um, you know, intercommunion and stuff like that. But ultimately, I think that's a sign of uh, the fullness of communion when we could all sit at the table of the Lord with fidelity, eat his body, drink his blood. And uh, a lot of differences have emerged out of some of these very things that are embedded at the, in this sort of initial sense that we find in, in Scripture. So it develops. Lots of controversies come out of this stuff. Yeah. Well, and I, I love the Road to Emmaus story, Father, and the one part of that story that you mentioned that resonates the most with me when I read it or hear it um, at Sunday Mass is, yes, they're, they're experiencing the liturgy of the Word, right? Their hearts are burning, right? But they still don't recognize Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus in the exposition of the quote-unquote Word alone. But when they're with Jesus and they're celebrating the Mass, they do recognize right. Him in the breaking of the bread. But when they do recognize Him, He disappears. So if He's not there, how necessarily did they recognize Him? Well, one of the things I like to think about is they recognized Him in the Eucharist in each other. In that moment when they receive Jesus in the Eucharist, they are tabernacles, if you will, for each other. Nice and so he, he disappears, if you will, so that they'll recognize him, they'll recognize Jesus in each, each other. other. Yep. And, and boy, if I could only get my, my wife and I and my kids to all agree with that <laughs> and live like that was true. But what, what beautiful imagery comes out of that passage in that it's, regard. Yeah, it's a great story. When Father Irma, you shared that he's, that he's sharing the, the scriptures with them as on that seven-mile walk, and, and that would be the Old Testament. And, 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 and they, they knew their Old Testament so well. And he's demonstrating to them how, how these different things you talk right. about, covenant, you talk about the bread of the presence, those things that are just coming, to, you know, screaming to him in a, in a, in a, in a, in a finish line, if, if, if you will. And that's when they see all these things that have happened have come to represent me. Right. I mean, that's what the scripture is about, is God's great plan, his mystery, is to bring it about. And that's, he's the incarnate face of God, so he becomes the embodiment of all of that communion that it's about so yeah so you take all that old testament and uh, see as it, as it funnels into him as the norm of all norms mm -hmm. yeah can you do that in seven miles <laughs> <laughs> well how fast were you walking yeah. <laughs> well, well we'll look at you walking and reading nathan and we'll see how that goes <laughs> yeah. well and i have wondered about that though because I'm, I'm pretty sure it says he opened up all the scriptures relating to him right and it was like can you, can you do that in seven miles <laughs> i guess he can right i suppose i don't know yeah, what, what, is, what is what is time to jesus yeah and, and any thoughts on that father well no and maybe not that's that's an interesting uh statement but it, it revealing all himself but i think yeah i think there's things in uh, you know you think about a walk that's a good what 
two and a half, three hours if you talk. Well, I don't know how yeah. fast you walk, depending how, I yeah. guess, tough the roads are. If you walk at a clip of three miles an hour, you're still, that's over two hours yeah. to get there for sure, if not longer. You can say lots of things. Can, can we get your homilies to be that long, Father? <laughs> Some people say shorter. <laughs> All right. Well, we're talking here with Father Jim Ermer, the pastor at St. Leo's Catholic Church in Castleton about the Eucharist. And we'll get more of his insights on some history and some importance of the Eucharist in this important time where we really focus on the Eucharist as a church. You're listening to Real Presence Live across the Real Presence Radio Network. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. The, the very day that uh, I was appointed as bishop, uh, I came over to the studio and, and uh, had an interview with you. And, and so that was my first introduction to Real Presence. It's been, it's been part of my life as a bishop from the very beginning. And I felt... You know, from that very, very first time that uh, we talked uh, on the air, I, I felt like I already was being introduced to the faithful of our diocese and to this whole area, which which is a great thing because, you know, one of the, the challenges for a new bishop, an old bishop, any bishop, is to um, have contact with his people and to be a part of their lives in some way. And Real Presence Radio, from the first day has helped me to do that. I really feel like I have a way to to reach the lives of our Catholic faithful and others as well who just happen to be listening. And and that's a real blessing because in a diocese as large as ours, area-wise, it's, it's hard to get around to every place. And um, I traveled all the parishes as much as I can, and, and yet this is a way that I can reach people that otherwise perhaps I wouldn't be able to visit with. And they get a chance to hear what's on my mind, and, and uh, through different events that I've participated in on the air, I've heard some of their questions, too, which has been a lot of fun. So it's, it really is a blessing to me. I, I feel very fortunate that this, this network is so alive and so vibrant in, in our diocese and really in this whole Northern Plains area. It's wonderful. Did you know you can listen to all your favorite local shows like Awaken and Real Presence Live on any podcast platform such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Amazon Music? Just search for Real Presence Radio on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes in the future. And don't forget to give us a good rating so others can discover the shows. Listen to your favorite RPR shows anytime, anywhere by subscribing on any podcast platform. Just search for Real Presence Radio today. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. You're listening across the Real Presence Radio Network. My name is Nathan Sather, joining you here from the Fargo studio with my wonderful co-host and good friend, Tom O'Keefe. Good morning. And we're talking with Father Ermer here about the Eucharist, and we went through some of the scriptures, and one of my favorite quotes in a book about the Eucharist was a Scott Hahn book. I'll probably butcher the quote, but it was something to the effect of, uh, it's because the word testament you know, essentially means covenant, those are interchangeable words, uh, that the, the Eucharist, 
the, the New Testament was a sacrament before it was a document according to the document. So the first Christians meant when they, when they met, they referred to their time together, um, obviously sharing in the covenant that God had established for them, but they didn't have a, a written New Testament yet. And, and that was very insightful for me. I mean, it's obvious when you think about it. Well, of course they met before there was an actual New Testament. Um, but the, the Eucharist and our understanding of it has continued to grow and deepen. And there have been things throughout history that have happened that have, have like you said, not changed the substance or whatnot, but, but certainly changed how we've approached it or, or how we've actually celebrated it. Um, obviously, when you're living in... Uh, ancient Rome, and you're going to get killed if you're a Christian, right? You got to have something other than a cathedral in order to celebrate the Eucharist. That so, can you share some of those historical developments and, and how it's changed our our understanding of the Eucharist over time, Father Immer? Well, one of the things I've always when I I, I like history, so it's interesting mm-hmm. to watch how different dimensions emerge over time. But in the very earliest times, since like you said, it was persecution, most Christians probably gathered at a house, church kind of a thing. One of the things I remember reading about liturgy is they probably had a meal, a fellowship meal. And uh, that was the very earliest form, was you gathered for a fellowship meal, unusually the first day of the week, and you had an actual regular meal, and either before or in the middle or after, you took some bread and some of the wine that was there and did that basic we'd call the Eucharistic, uh, you know, uh, consecration that we call, and, and, and bless the bread and give thanks, Lord, and take communion. That didn't last probably, maybe that's what Paul's talking about in his letter to the Corinthians too, that kind of a, a house church where people are gathering in probably the largest, maybe some of the more rich people had bigger homes so they could accommodate that kind of stuff. And that's why some of this division between rich and poor were happening and Paul's so disappointed and that's not what the Eucharist is about. But uh, that practice seemed to drop off fairly quickly as more and more people joined. Houses weren't big enough. So it just becomes now what we would know as kind of the form that we would have today gathering just for the worship and praise of God and uh, receiving his body and blood. But I think the thing that kind of really changed in many ways that dimension too was the Edict of Milan in 313. Because by the late 300s, basically Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. And that I think had a big change in terms of the way it was celebrated. Now all of a sudden there was buildings that you could go to in the state and the church became kind of hand in glove with one another. The, the Eucharist became almost a state function as well as what we called believers just gathering it because everyone was, by the late 300s, becoming asked to be members of the church. And I think these things, as you read kind of literature, you begin to start seeing bishops at that time who were the episcopoi, the Greek word for overseers of the church, who were the celebrants of Eucharist, also became, because it was so connected with state, became, became some of the maybe judicial people of their time and age who recognized judgment. And all of a sudden, bishops took on it a different role. They were not only did the, celebrating the Eucharist, but they were also kind of working with judging cases in terms of because they were learned people of their day and age. Vestments became a part of this whole thing, processions, incensing. The church became much more majestic in that sense, and that began to have a deep, I think, influence, a lot of people say, on, on, on the Eucharist. The Latin language became, by the end of the 300s, a pretty dominant way of, the language of the day, because you know, Greek was probably the original language, or Aramaic for, for the Jews in, in the land of Israel. So you're getting all sorts of things kind of going on there. And then with the Council of Nicaea, where Christ's divinity is truly, truly proclaimed that he is the same substance as the Father, you know, if uh, and this is a sacrifice, and the emphasis on Christ, you begin to start seeing some practices begin to develop in life of the church, like private masses, duplicating masses, rather than 
one mass being celebrated by the Episcopal, the bishop, and then kind of, because now there's lots of churches, you got to send different priests out or people to celebrate the Eucharist in far-flung communities. You're no longer just in the big metropolitan areas. This had some significant changes, I think, in how, how Eucharist was, uh, was celebrated. And especially as you begin to develop this idea of Christ is divine, he's truly God. And, and that was kind of a big issue with the Council of um, Nicaea because that was not always the way Christ was understood. He was either a great teacher for the Gnostics or he was like God, but not quite God, like for the Arianists. Once that became established fact, and this is Christ, the God in our midst kind of thing, well, the more times you can do that, the better off is for people. And that became then votive masses and masses for people's intentions. So the, the form of Eucharist really took, I think, some significant changes here. And then, for example, when Rome fell in about the, the Roman Empire in about the late 400s, that did an interesting thing in the liturgy too because you had the Eastern churches now and the West church, which is Latin and the ones were more Greek, even to this day. And they had a different way of going about at the Greeks more or less when they went to different lands as missionaries. They took on the language of the people. And so maybe Cyril and Metho- Metho- Methodius, they developed a Cyrillic language when they did it among the Slavs. The, the Romans, the Latin didn't do that. They imposed the Latin on the people that they conquered. That had an effect different than in the Eastern Church. In the Eastern Church, you, you developed the Bible. You tried to translate it into the language that was common to its day and age, to its people. The Latins didn't quite do that. And so that begins to have as Latin becomes, and people get into more vernacular language in German and French and, you know, and English, but they don't understand that, the Eucharist becomes more something you observe rather than something that you are led into. So I, I always think history has a way of kind of shaping a lot of this. The Carolingian reforms in the 800s when, you know, Charlemagne tried to develop a rule, the Holy Roman Empire again. The only institution that was kind of left there after Rome left was the church as an institution. So he, so now all of a sudden, in order to make that a unifying force in the, in the Carolingian reforms and the, in the Holy Roman Empire, all of a sudden these different prayers, because there was all sorts of prayers being used in Gaul, which is basically France, in Britain, Ireland, what we call Germany. And so he begins to start pulling these prayers that now becomes more centralized. You see this centralizing effect going on in the Western Latin church, which becomes now something what we take today as granted that the prayers are the same. That wasn't always the case in the history of the church. You know, there's the Galatian sacramentary, the Leonine sacramentary. There's lots of sacramentaries out there at that time, but the, that begins to shape the life of the church kind of thing. So they care. And then I think, you know, another thing happened in the, then all of a sudden the focus becomes more and more when you get to like the 10 hundreds. How does this bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? And is it symbolic or is it really real? And that becomes a focus. Uh, Berengar, who was a French monk, was the one who said it's basically a symbol. symbol. And that got the church into a huge big fight about what we'd call real presence issues. That became more dominant in the late 1000s. And then you all of a sudden, you know, you have the word transubstantiation. Thomas Aquinas brings that in to try to explain this reality. So a lot of things are happening. And I think if you don't read history, we become thinking it's always been done this way. I think history says no. Lots of issues here. Well, that my mom at one time told me that the, the mass was always said when Jesus said it in Latin. <laughs> so not quite. So some some historical misunderstandings can certainly take right. place. But yeah, thank you so much, Father Irma, yeah. for your time with us. Yeah. I could just sit and listen to you for literally forever. So uh, 
Unfortunately, our show is almost coming to an end, but we are going to have another one tomorrow. So what do we have on tap for Real Presence Live tomorrow? On the next Real Presence Live, Tuesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central, Chris Euler and Dominic King are your hosts, coming to you live from Roncalli High School. They will be talking with Matthew Bruninger about a new book that shows how we can find healing in God's grace. And Nicole Bruning will be sharing about how great schools start with great teachers. All this and much more is coming on the next Your Presence Live, Tuesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central. Back to you. Wonderful. Tom, we had a, we had a great day today. Yes. Father Irmer finished us yep. off really well. I think we, a, need to, we need to bleed into the next hour. Yep, uh, just a next variety, hour. <laughs> variety of topics that have been ended really strong. We can always you know, start and finish with the Eucharist and, and the presence of Jesus in our lives. Yeah, yep, very well done. Uh, I, did, I did really enjoy... Uh, talking about Fulton Sheen. It was cool to listen to you have a little different perspective um, in watching him as a young boy. Uh, Tanbooks.com is where you can kind of find more information about that if you're listening to us in that segment. Uh, University of Mary, that school has transformed significantly under Monsignor Shea's leadership and they're naming themselves now the St. Gianna School for Health Sciences. I'll try not to mess that one up again. Uh, just some amazingly holy things that are happening there at the university. Uh, and, and a lot of the attacks against the church are coming in the health-related fields. So having folks that um, are there and are, are Catholic and, and good-minded, um, good character is going to be essential. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been there myself. Like I said, I'm, I'm a nurse, and uh, there's, there's times when you, when you have that, we call it the moral injury, when, when you're asked to do something that you know is, is yeah. wrong. Yeah. And a little TPUSA faith conversation, our time with Father Irmer. we got about a minute left. Father, could you leave us with your priestly blessing before we end our, our show for today? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we ask you uh, and thank you for the gift of life, for the gift of your truth, your call to love that you ask of all of us. We pray that all that we do always will sanctify your people and give glory to you. We ask and pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We thank you so much again to all of our listeners who support this radio station. This radio station literally is put on by you. It literally is your Catholic radio station. We can't thank you enough for your support, both financially and through your prayers. Uh, know how much we are blessed here at Real Presence Radio by the sacrifices that you make, and we certainly hope you're blessed by the sacrifices and offerings that we make on your behalf as well. So for Tom O'Keefe, for myself, for everyone here at Real Presence Radio, may God bless you and keep you safe in his arms. Amen. Amen. This has been Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Real Presence Live brings you inspirational stories of faith and a look at the good and holy things happening in our local area. Weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central. Tune in for an encore of each show beginning Saturday morning at 6. Get the podcast any time of day or night at yourcatholicradiostation.com or on the Real Presence Radio app. And remember, you can be a part of the conversation through Facebook and Twitter. Real Presence Live, local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network.